If you want to take your Bibles and turn, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 23 this morning. 1 Samuel 23. We live in a world that is preoccupied with the notion of power. Who has the power? Who has been deprived of power? Who is using their power to harm other people? And whose power is on the rise? And unless I, I took some time way too early this morning and Googled power, and there was, it was just really, it was, it was, it was <coughs> sad. The, the way that people use their power, you know, just even looking at headlines, and one common theme in the headlines was the way that people were trying to use the power they had to gain even more power. A politician trying to use his political power to gain power over people sexually. People trying to use their fame to leverage it for financial gain. Uh, military leaders in Myanmar trying to use their military power to gain political power. You know, we just, we take the power that we have and we try to leverage it for even more power over other people. Unless we go looking at that and decrying the modern world and all its evils, the Bible confronts us with that same picture of humanity. Desperately hungry to get ahead, to protect, number one, regardless of the consequences to others. The obsession with power is not a modern obsession. It's a human obsession. David, in 1 Samuel 23, is facing a serious threat as he is irrationally hated and pursued by the power-hungry King Saul. And while David has occasionally looked for shelter in other places, he has only one source of true refuge, the shadow of the Almighty. David is leading a life that is God-sheltered. And so in our text today, in 1 Samuel 23, I think we'll see three features of that life, three features of the God-sheltered life. Let's read the first six verses here. It says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought against the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. So if you remember from last week, David at this point is in the forest of Hereth, which is in Judah, 1 Samuel 22, 5. And while he's here, messengers come to him with a report. The Philistines are attacking the city of Keilah. They're robbing the threshing floors. Keilah would be about 18 miles southwest of what would become Jerusalem. So it 
place, that place is out on the edge, the western edge of Judea, and thus very close to Philistine territory. And it, because it's close to Philistine territory, it's prone to being raided. And for these people to have the threshing floors being raided is a huge deal. I mean, not, not only is the threshing floor the place where they would separate the grain from the chaff, but this is also likely where they would have stored all of that grain. So this is like someone coming in and going to every silo in Plymouth County and emptying the grain out. Like your, your wealth is gone, your storage is gone, your safety net is gone. It would, almost it would be more like they emptied every silo and then they emptied every bank at the same time. This is, that, that's about the, what the equivalent would be. So what should they do? I mean, you might think, hey, we should call the king, the one who is here to protect us. But that doesn't seem to be what they do. Whether they reached out to Saul and nothing happened, we don't know. But, but here we find that they reach out to that renowned Philistine killer, the slayer of Goliath, David the outlaw. And David seems willing to go. But before he rushes into anything, he approaches God in prayer. He says, shall I go and attack the Philistines? That's what he asks in verse 2. But then God answers in the affirmative, and David's 600 men, is his group of men swelled from 400 in chapter 22, verse, I think it's 13 here, tells us that he now has six, 600 men. They're not very thrilled by the idea of going to fight the Philistines. It's like, David, we're scared and on the run, hiding out here in Judea. Why would we go fight the Philistines? This doesn't make any sense. And that, that seems for them like a reasonable response, but, but David's not deterred. He's not slowed down. He just goes and says, okay, well, I'll go ask God again, and we'll see what God has to say. And when he asks God again, God again assures him, yes, you should do this, and he assures him of victory. But note the emphasis this time. In verse 2, God said, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So the emphasis seems to be on, yes, go do this, you go save them. But in verse 4, what we see is God saying, I will give the Philistines into your hand. Now, we know in verse 2 that would have been true. If David would have defeated them, God would have been giving them into his hand. But here in this, this iteration of God's response to him, he makes clear, the source of the victory will be me. You can go, you can count on God to deliver them into your hand. So David and his men do go down. We see that in verse 5. They go down and they carry the day. Keilah is saved, and they not only defeat the Philistines, but they take their livestock, which, I mean, which is interesting. Like, why have the Philistines brought their livestock down there? Are they going to, are they bringing oxen to haul the grain out, or are they just moving into Keilah? Like, hey, this is a pretty good place. Thanks for doing all the work, guys. We're now going to enjoy the benefits of your labor. I don't know. But God has delivered the city by the hand of David. Which brings us to verse 6, which is, it's interesting, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, whose commentary I have not just benefited from, I've really enjoyed reading, he argues that this is the hinge point of verses 1 to 13. Everything centers around what just seems like an informational point here. So if you remember chapter 22, Doeg the Edomite, under the guidance of King Saul, he killed the 85 priests who were from Nob, and then he goes into Nob, and he slaughters their families. He kills them all, and there's only one person who escapes, and it's Abiathar, who flees to David. Well, here we're told in verse 6 that when Abiathar came to David, 
he brought an ephod. Now all of the priests would have worn a linen ephod under their garments, but the high priest had a breastplate that went with his ephod. And that breastplate on it had a container that held the, the Urim and the Thummim. And as Tim Chester put notes in his commentary, we, we don't know what the Urim and the Thummim looked like. We don't even know exactly what they were. We do know that they were re- used for receiving revelation from God. It could be that they were like dice. Uh, so you think uh, Proverbs, I don't remember the exact citation in Proverbs, where it says, that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So that could be re- referring to the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, some commentators, that they think that these are stone, two different stones of different colors, like a black stone and a white stone. We don't, we're not sure. But the point of verse 6 is that the priestly means for seeking the Lord's guidance has been brought by Abiathar to David, which is going to come in handy in this next section. So beginning in verse 7, it says, Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And Saul was told that David, when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. So things start to look shaky for David here in verse 7, as Saul hears of his presence in the city, and he musters the troops to go attack him. I, I think it's worth stopping here to point out the language of Saul. It says, God has given him into my hand which is paralleled in some sense by his pious-sounding expression that we'll get to down in verse 21, where the Ziphites come and rat David out, and, and, and Saul says to them, May you be blessed by the Lord. Th- those phrases are just what I called them. They're pious-sounding. They're not an accurate window into the heart of Saul. The, this matters, I think, because as Christians, it's, it's pretty easy for us to get excited anytime we hear an athlete or a politician or some other public figure, uh, you know, a, no, uh, a celebrity, say things like, thank God or God bless America or tag and Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior onto the end of some random statement. But without, I, mean, I don't want to throw shade at any individuals, but we ought to take seriously the words of Jesus in Matthew 7:16, where he says, you shall know them by their fruits. Saul can use pious language here. But he's either, he's either just misreading the situation because of all the sin that's in his heart, or, as I think is possibly the case here, he's just intentionally using language that he knows will communicate to the people he's talking to without actually meaning it. He's being duplicitous. In either way, his, his invocation of God is totally empty. 
God's not on his side. He can say, may the Lord bless you all he wants. God's not on Saul's side. One of the stunning contrasts we see in this chapter is the, between the relationship of David to Keilah and Saul to Keilah. David goes there to save the city from the Philistines, to, to be their savior, while Saul, the king of Israel, is eager to go to this Israelite city and lay siege to it so that he can get David. David is again seen as, per, as fulfilling the role that Saul is supposed to perform, but Saul is so dead set on maintaining his own power that he's failing to do the mo most basic parts of his job, like protecting his land from invaders. Saul's looming attack drives David right back to where he was before he went to Keilah, looking to God in prayer. In, in verse 9, he urges Abiathar to bring the ephod near so that he can go to the Lord for guidance. And he asks the Lord whether the people will hand him over to Saul and whether Saul will come down. I think it's kind of an interesting interchange because at first God just says, Saul's coming down. <laughs> so David goes back with that second part of the question again. No, but are they going to turn me over to him? And God says, yes, yes, they are. Saul is coming and the city will turn you over. And this might seem awfully ungrateful on the part of the city, right? David has just delivered you from the Philistines and now you're going to turn him right back over to Saul. But I mean, lest we judge them too harshly, they've got to have right there in their minds, what just happened to Nob? That, that city was just destroyed. Every man, woman, child, and animal was slaughtered because of their connection to David. It wasn't even a real connection. It was just in the mind of Saul there was a connection. And so the whole city got slaughtered. Being connected to David, lining up with David against Saul could be disastrous for them. And so while I don't think what they did or what they were intending to do was right, it's very understandable. Now David takes from this clear message that he again needs to be on the run. And this has got to just, it's got to be devastating. I mean, you would think, here's, here's David, he's been out in the wilderness, on the run, running for his life, and he saves this city, and you would think, oh, we can just chill out here for a while, guys. You know, we just saved their harvest, maybe they'll give us some food, we can relax for a little bit in the safety of a city, and now, all of a sudden, we've got to be back on the run again. He has to flee into the wilderness of Ziph. So what do we learn from these first 13 verses of the chapter. I think we see both driving David into the city and out of it, a reliance upon listening prayer, listening prayer as a means of spiritual guidance. Saul is constantly getting human messengers to work for him. He's always seeking out more and more and more information. He's always sending people to get information for him. And while David receives some of that same kind of human intelligence, nothing wrong with getting human information when you can. His ultimate source of information for making determinations, making decisions, is the Lord himself. Now, how do we translate that to us? What do I mean by saying listening prayer? I want to quote here from Del Ralph Davis. He says, a contemporary believer might say, I see that, and it's all very nice, but I do not receive the kind of precise direct guidance that David did. Neither do I. But I don't need it. I'm not the chosen king. It does my ego no damage to concede that David's function in salvation history is far more crucial than mine. 
The fortunes of the kingdom of Yahweh in this world rest far more on David's preservation than on mine. Now here's the key sentence. What was essential for Yahweh's elect king to have, he received. Now, that, that last sentence, was what was essential or crucial for David to have, he received. I, I want to challenge you this morning. What, what you need from God, you have received. It, it, it can be very tempting for us to, to think that the old Sunday school answers them. Read your Bible and pray. Read your Bible and pray. Well, I want more than that, God. Like, I need something clearer than that. That, that somehow we might think God owes us more guidance than this, or that we could maybe access something more spiritual, attain another level of spiritual power. But that's simply not what the Word of God says to us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 Many of you will be familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which say, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God is here. It teaches, reproves, corrects, trains us, that we might be complete, like whole, full, have everything we need for every good work God has laid in front of us. Every hard decision we have to make, we have either the direct guidance or the principles that we need in Scripture to make the right call. Every good work means, before every good work, <laughs> that's what it means. It doesn't mean it gives us all the answers we want. Sometimes we're still left scratching our head, right? I mean, we've all experienced that. But, but God's given you everything you need. Faith is such an important piece of this. So we trust that, God, you've given me what I need. This is where I think reading, reading in prayer and praying the word is key. This, this word was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit is the one who enlivens it and makes it effective to the dividing of soul and spirit, Hebrews 4.12 says. So the attitude of David, his attitude of praying and listening to the Lord, of whether that's going to Abiathar the priest, and here we've got the Urim and the Thummim, or Gad could still be with him, chapter 22, Gad the prophet had come, and so he could be listening to Gad, the word of the Lord, in that way, coming through the prophet. That's the same attitude we ought to have when we come to our praying and looking at God's word. Do you feel like your prayer life is dry? Spend a few days where you set aside the laundry list way of praying. I mean, this, this, I, I slip into this like virtually constantly. Like I've got this laundry list of things I want God to do and to address. And I just like think through those. Set that aside, and, and instead let God's word shape your prayer. Let the Spirit, who has spoken in the word, through the word, shape your prayer life by the Bible. Is your Bible reading dull, boring? You're like, man, I just don't get anything out of this. Stop reading forward for a few minutes. 
and pray over those lines you just read. Think, think like, God, what does it mean that you are my shepherd? Help me to be satisfied in you, to not want, to be happy in you. Would you cause me to know the sweetness of lying down in the green pastures and drinking from the still waters of your salvation? A life sheltered by God looks, first of all, to him alone as our source of wisdom, our source of guidance, our source of strength. We don't need Abiathar with the Urim and the Thummim, nor do we need the prophet Gad traveling with us constantly. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, sent by the Son of God, who is our perfect prophet and priest, and he is speaking to us in his word. So pray and do so with your ear. You ever watch those movies where they're waiting, like, uh, I always think of Real Lobo. Not a great John Wayne movie, but it's still one of my favorites. And in the first part of the movie, the, the Confederate soldiers, they've got their ear to the tracks, listening for the train to come. And I think, like, that's how we should read our Bible, is with our ear to the book, listening. God, I trust that you're actually going to speak to me here. Like, that there's something here for me to learn. Something here for me to know. Some sweet communion with you to have in the book. I'm preaching to myself right now. Like, day by day, I don't do this. Don't experience this the way I should. But it's there for us. The next thing we see is verses 14 through 18. David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. So David heads south at this point into the wilderness of Ziph. And the town of Ziph is located about 12 miles southeast of Keilah. So David hasn't really traveled far, but he has once again escaped from Saul for the moment. And here I need to issue a correction, because I'm pretty sure when we looked at David and Jonathan's goodbye in chapter 20, I said that that was the last time that they had met, which obviously is wrong. Um, so I apologize for not being careful with my facts when I said that. It is ironic in the text that Saul is unable to find David, and yet Jonathan seems to have no such difficulty. He's able to go right to him. Uh, but what I want to focus on is not the fact so much that David came out as why he came out to meet his friend. What did he come to do? Verse 16 tells us to strengthen his hand in God. And this is precisely what David needs. It, it must have been a massively discouraging time for David. In chapter 22, we read of a whole town being decimated because of their connection to David. And in 23, we find David saving a city and then immediately being betrayed by them and forced to flee again. So what did David need? He needed to be reminded of God's promises to him. Enter Jonathan. <coughs> Jonathan says, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. 
you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. That, that statement has four parts. The first part is do not fear. And it's been often noted that that is the most frequent command in the Bible. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not. And we need that. We need that to be the most frequent command in the Bible because we're afraid a lot of the time. We are so often finding things to be afraid of. Why does David not need to fear in this circumstance? Because of the third part of the statement, God's promised he's going to be king over Israel. You shall be king over Israel, Jonathan reminds him. This was God's promise, and if God is going to keep that promise, then part two of Jonathan's statement must also be true. The hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. He's not going to lay hands on you. He's not going to grab you and have power over you. He's not going to kill you. And the only part of this statement that fails to come true is the fourth part. The part that is Jonathan's personal promise, I shall be next to you. God hadn't promised that. And it fell outside of Jonathan's power to actually deliver it. But even in this statement, we find his loyalty to David and his confidence that God will indeed seat David on the throne of Israel. As Joyce Baldwin puts it in her commentary, it was not only the warmth of human friendship that strengthened David, but much more Jonathan's certainty as to God's promise for the future. Do you have friends like this? Those who will confidently come alongside you, even in the worst of times, and assure you of God's promises. Friends who will remind you to lift up your, your eyes, lift your eyes up off your feet of clay and look in Bunyan's imagery towards the celestial city. Maybe even more pressing, are you committed to being that kind of friend for other believers? We can offer people all the platitudes in the world when life is going wrong, and it will not matter a hill of beans in the end. But point people to the word of God, and you will have an enduring impact for their good. One key feature of the God-sheltered life is having friends who remind you that God is, in fact, sheltering you which is especially important when the enemy closes in, which brings us to verses 19 to 29. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me, poor, poor Saul. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where your foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Zip ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. 
as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So David's circumstances actually got worse after Jonathan left him. The men of Ziph, men of the tribe of Judah, David's kinsmen, preemptively inform Saul of his whereabouts. They don't even wait for Saul to come asking. After Saul urges them to do a double check, carefully searching out all of the hiding places, that word for crafty that Saul uses for David, same word that's used of the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. He's a crafty one. Better watch out for him. Make sure you actually know where he is. And then here is where the tension in the chapter reaches a fever pitch in verse 26 where it says, Saul is on one side of the mountain and David and his men are on the other side of the mountain and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. Like, this is getting intense. They're on the same mountain. And then it just feels like David's been able to elude him time and time again. But it just feels like the gig is up. Like, David has... the cat has got to his ninth life. You know, this is, this is it. Verse 27 says, Saul is closing in. And this is the part of the movie, right, where we close our eyes and go, no, 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 no. The hero's about to be captured and killed until a messenger reaches Saul. Hurry, for the Philistines made a raid against the land. And it's interesting, this chapter opens with David going to deliver people from the Philistines. And here the Philistines come in as his savior, if you will. They come in as the the heroes, the unlikely heroes of the story. You breathe. The the timing is perfect. And and frankly, even the response from Saul, even hearing this message, is unexpected because he didn't go save Keilah when they were under attack by the Philistines, but this time he hears of a Philistine raid and he does go to save them. He, He... he breaks off the pursuit of David and just, just as he was about to capture him. It's in this circumstance that David penned Psalm 54, and I just want to read it. It's only seven verses. It says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. He has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. In David's God-sheltered life, he sought the Lord in listening prayer. He was encouraged by the Lord in a strengthening friendship. And most of all, he was protected by the Lord's kind providence. Do you know this same Lord? You know that same friendship, that same protection, that same shelter. It's there for everyone who comes to Jesus. As Paul writes, 
in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's writing this in the context of being abandoned by all of his friends. So just have that in mind as you listen to this or, or read it. Paul's been abandoned by many of those who love him. And in 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18, he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are our rock. I was just listening to somebody the other day talk about rocks. And and we often think that, that that's a an image that God is like a rock, strong and steadfast, but but Lord, you you made rocks so that we could know how strong and steadfast you are. It's the other way around. There, there is no one like you, no one who gives us shelter like you. David could go and hide in these caves and be have people inform against him and have to be on the run, and yet you still sheltered him. You even used the enemies of the people of Israel to provide him protection in some circumstances. Lord, we can't see what you're doing. We don't know how your providential hand is working in our circumstances, but Lord, we know that if we are yours, all things are working together for our good. Would you give us that kind of firm and confident hope? Would you help us to be the kind of friends who remind our brothers and sisters that God is at work. God will keep his promises. God will never fail. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everything we need you have given. And Lord, we need to know that, and you have told us that in your word. Give us hearts that are desperately desirous to know and meditate on your word. Lord, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would make that word alive to us. Apply it deeply to our hearts. Help us to walk in the wisdom shaped by you and in communion with you every day. We ask.